Hello and welcome to the final session in this day-long IFG conference looking at standards in public life. I'm Catherine Haddon, Senior Fellow at the Institute for Government. And for our final session, we're going to turn to public bodies, the huge number of organisations that are involved in everything from flood responses to food standards, from what we read to the roads we drive on. Uh, how sectors are regulated, and even the very watchdogs that oversee standards in our system. Now, in deciding who should manage and oversee those bodies, the government have to abide by an appointment system that, for the last five and a half years, was overseen by our final guest speaker, Peter Riddle. Peter is also a, di a former director of the Institute for Government. Peter, thank you for joining us, and welcome back. It's great to be back. Uh, and also joining us to debate that's how that system operates, what needs to be reformed, is a senior fellow uh, and our lead on our work on arm's length bodies, Matthew Gill. Uh, Matthew, thanks for being here. Hi, Kath. And as ever, we want to hear from you, so do send in your questions using the Q&A functions. Uh, Peter will start by giving us a few reflections on his time in office, the system that he oversaw, and how well that is working. And after a day like today, I'm sure there is lots that we will want to discuss. Peter, over to you. Thanks, Kath. Yes, I mean, I, what I'm going to do is stick to my um, last of public appointments in the remarks I make now before we discuss various other things. And um, after a day like today, I think there are quite a lot of other things we can discuss. After completing my extended five and a half years as Commissioner for Public Appointments, I don't intend either to spill the beans or to be a backseat driver. Unlike one prominent former regulator who found, has found the temptation to comment irresistible, even um, after 15 years after leaving office, I will follow the always wise advice of Harold Macmillan that when the curtain falls on the last performance, you should accept the inevitable e finita la comedia and not hang around the green room but go away. But as a final bow, without going into any specific cases or controversies, I want to reflect on some general principles involved in being commissioner and also which run through the timely and very well-judged CSPL report upholding standards in public life. The central question for any regulator, and this also came up in the sessions earlier today, is the balance between advice and decision-making um, by ministers or in some cases MPs you're appointed to oversee a code setting out both principles and practical guidelines, but these are within the context of elected ministers being accountable for their decisions to Parliament. This applies to all the regulators referred to in the CSPR report. This dilemma, tension if you like, is inherent in the public appointments process, as it's set out in two successive pages of the original Nolan report of 26 years ago, Paragraph 29 of Chapter 4 concludes with a recommendation that, quote, ultimate responsibility for appointments should remain with ministers, end quote. And then Paragraph 35 recommends that, quote, all public appointments should be governed by the overriding principle of appointment on merit, close quotes. And the chapter goes on to suggest that all appointments to what we now call arm's length bodies should be made after advice from a panel or committee which includes an independent element. These have been the foundations of public appointments ever since, however much the specific procedures have changed. And these points, fundamental points, are reiterated um, in the latest report. Now, the system can be depicted as either constrained political patronage or constrained open competition. And this can produce misunderstanding and confusion. Often heard charges about politicization miss the point Ministers naturally want to appoint people who are in sympathy with their priorities, 
and who will implement their policies. There's nothing new about this at all. The fact that these bodies are at arm's length from departments implies the need for a degree of independence, and this applies particularly to regulators whose role is to scrutinise the actions of government. While the process is, her is inherently political, and ministers have a considerable say throughout about who should be considered uh, for interview and, and later, obviously, for appointment, they operate within guidelines defining and, to some extent, limiting their choices. Um, since the, the code, the government's code, not my code for, uh, for most of my time as, as commissioner, um, is the guiding principle. For most of my period in office and for most appointments, that's worked uh, reasonably well. Only reasonably, since the process often takes far too long and the range of applicants and those appointed is still too narrow. The system only works because of a mutual acceptance of restraints. That also applies to many of the other regulators too. As commissioner, I accepted that my primary role as a regulator was to see that the choices presented to ministers by advisory interview panels were based on merit after a fair and open competition in which there was a robust independent element. But I never commented about individual candidates and ministers' decisions. Who they pick from the list of candidates just to be appointable is up to them to explain and justify. Similarly, while ministers and their special advisors can and do make comments at each stage, they need to respect the integrity of the advisory interview panels. There have always been ambiguities. For example, the code allows ministers to appoint candidates judged unappointable by advisory panels, though only after consultation with the commissioner. I'm glad, even relieved to say, that this did not happen during my period as commissioner, though there was the odd close shave. It would be odd, to say the least, for someone to take over sharing a public body, even though everyone would know that they have been rejected in an open competition. Ministers are quite rightly able to reject the advice of interview panels about which candidates are judged appointable, but they have so far taken the more sensible course of ordering a rerun of a competition from scratch with a fresh panel. This happens actually a few times each year. The CSPL report does not go as far as I would in removing from the code the power to appoint unappointables, but it does propose strengthening ministerial accountability by requiring direct reporting of any such probably very exceptional appointment to the relevant select committee. There's also an inherent and often unappreciated tension in that advisory interview panels do not rank candidates in order of preference, but solely divide them into appointable and unappointable. This is on the grounds that ministers should have a free choice amongst those judged appointable. Hence, whatever nuanced judgments panels reach on the relative merits of those assessed as appointable can and often are brushed aside. The more general question addressed throughout the CSPL report is whether regulation by convention is any longer satisfactory. Like the committee, I believe that some codification is desirable not least in strengthening the independent element in the process in order to reinforce the integrity of the interview panels. Over the past 18 months, I've been concerned with attempts to stretch and in a very few cases to breach the governance code over the appointment of panel members. I therefore agree with the proposals in the, in the CSPL report on the appointment of panels and about an enhanced reporting role for senior independent panel members, generally for the top level of appointments. I also want to draw a more explicit distinction between arm's length bodies which essentially implement government policy 
and those responsible for scrutinising the actions of government. In this, I'm echoing earlier select committee reports, and indeed, the Institute for Government's own still very relevant uh, analysis in Read Before Burning, a report which came out more than a decade ago and still bears rereading now. Defining scrutiny bodies is not straightforward, however, since many also have executive roles. But like the CSPL report, I would start with standards bodies, constitutional watchdogs, if you like, such as ACABA on business appointments, headed by Eric Pickles, who spoke this morning, HOLAC for Lord's, Lord's appointments, the Registrar of Consultant Lobbyists, the Commissioner for Public Appointments, and the Independent Advisor on Ministers' Interests. They should all be appointed through the process for significant public appointments, as some already are. And most importantly, the assessment panel for each should have a majority of independent members. It might also be worth considering, though this is not covered in the CSPL report, the procedures of the Judicial Appointments Commission, where just one candidate is put forward, with the final power of the minister or appointing authority um, being just a veto or a request for reconsideration. The independence of these standards bodies might also be enhanced by having their roles set out in primary legislation as the Civil Service Commission already is in the 2010 Act. The final, and in, in, in some respects the most important question um, for anyone concerned with the uh, myriad of public bodies which Kath mentioned in her introduction, is does the present appointment system deliver a high quality and diverse range of people to chair and serve on the boards? From my own experience, I've seen and worked with a large number of dedicated people performing a public service for little or no remuneration. Roughly half of, of public appointments have no pay at all. But no one would pretend that the range of appoint appointees is broad enough. This is partly a matter of diversity in the conventional sense of the number of female and ethnic minority appointees, but the record has actually improved considerably over the past decade and is, is much better than in either the private or the voluntary sectors. This is despite a dip in 2020-21, uh, possibly associated with the impact of the COVID pandemic on the pattern of appointments and reappointments. These trends will have to be uh, watched very closely from now on. I did not mention the number of candidates declaring disabilities, where the performance as elsewhere in public life remains very disappointing. One of my main conclusions from my period as, com as commissioner concerns the untapped potential contribution of people with disabilities of various kinds, who have much broader experience and insights than most of us. And a lot of practical steps can be taken to encourage their participation, um, which much more needs to be done. There's also a broader sense that public appointees are drawn from too narrow a social and geographical base, and despite a recent decline in the average age, are still too heavily drawn from the nearly or already retired. A wider range of views and experience needs to be represented as well. More needs to be done to persuade um, and interest a wider range of people in appointments, and to provide mentoring and support for potential appointees along the lines of the excellent Boardroom Apprentice Initiative in Northern Ireland, and a pilot scheme this year, sponsored by the Cabinet Office, the Public Chairs Forum, and uh, my old office, the Office of Commissioner for Public Appointments. In the spring, my former office published a review of remuneration, which highlighted big inconsistencies in the balance between pay and days worked. And these are quite often uh, longer in time commitment than what is advertised when, when the jobs um, go out to competition. This is not about the pay of chairs, but about reducing the barriers to application for member positions from those in part-time work with caring responsibilities and the disabled. 
Finally, more thought needs to be given by sponsoring departments, ministers and advisors to those holding public appointments, uh, candidate or customer care, as it's been called. This is partly about streamlining the process of appointment. A review more than two years ago, well before the COVID disruptions, showed that only a half of competitions are completed within the three-month goal, an aspiration, as it's described in vital language, they didn't like to describe it as a target. Many appointments take twice as long as this three months. The biggest single reason is the time taken by ministers and advisors to reach a decision after the interview panels have reported. No wonder many potential candidates are deterred from applying. Similarly, there's often disillusion amongst those chairing public bodies with the distant and often arbitrary attitude of some sponsoring departments and ministers, a point which Sir John Kingman made in a very um, forceful um, retiring speech as chair of UKRI, one of Britain's most important and biggest public bodies. Arms legs public bodies perform vital roles across the whole of British life. Business, health, education, justice, museums, the arts, the media, and a wide range of regulatory and oversight roles. They need to be nurtured and their independence valued. Thank you. Thank you very much, Peter. Um, I want to start by asking you a bit about one of the themes that has come up today. Often when public appointments are in the news, it's about a particular appointment and often it's a row about who has been put forward for, for that appointment. Um, one of the themes that has been coming out of today's conference has been the importance of understanding how the rules actually operate and of people, especially as you pointed out today, understanding the nuances of that. Does it frustrate you when you see misunderstandings, whether that's in the news, in the reports that are coming out, or perhaps even in the government, about how the process is actually working? It's frustrating, but understandable. I mean, you know, um, I know we're all in favour of citizenship education, but I, I, I don't think the governance case for public appointment should be part of citizenship education. That's perhaps sparring a little too far. But no, I, I, I sometimes do get frustrated when people... Uh, I mean, it comes from two angles. One, the ones which would rather do away with regulators and mm. appoint who they want. Uh, it, on social media, you get people saying, oh, well, X or Y is not independent. And as I point out, this is inherently a political process. Mm. And so when you get controversial appointments, and you're quite right, those are the ones which stir interest, there'll be all kinds of misapprehensions about the process. For example, um, well, I won't go into detail, the Ofcom chair, which is now being rerun as a competition. There was a lot of comment that um, ministers had rejected the findings of the first panel. Now, that's absolutely within their right to do so. Um, it happens actually, well, I wouldn't say frequently, but not infrequently, a few times a year. And um, it doesn't normally get as much publicity as this particular competition has. And they're perfectly within their type rights to do that. This, then to decide to rerun a competition isn't. Uh, it's within the terms of the code, but the key thing there is that it does follow the code. Mm. And then you get into nuanced things about you know, personalities and what's in the background. But there wasn't much understanding that rejecting the first um, recommendations of the interview panel was absolutely fine in terms of the code and having a fresh competition. What mm. matters is how it's done and so on, which is something my successor's doing. So th that was slightly irritating. People assume that... X or Y, because they disagree with the government or whatever. Mm. Matthew, do you think it's good for transparency or bad for the process if these appointments have led to a major public row? Well, I think, um, 
when you have a public discussion of a particular appointment in this way, mm. I actually think that's problematic for a couple of reasons. Um, the first one is that it, it potentially distorts that, that competition, particularly if it's happened pre-application and there's a view that you know, may or may not be the government's view that's out in the public as to this is who we want for this job, um, then that can put people off and potentially um, you know, um, could exert influence over the process. Um, I think also there's a broader problem there um, if um, other people who might be applying for different roles in the future are looking at the press and thinking, this is the kind of conversation that might happen about me if I apply for a different role in six or 12 months' time um, and would, would want to have confidence that the process was going to be impartial mm. and that they would have a fair shot at it and not being picked out. Now, Matthew's got a very good point there. The, the pre-leaking to favoured journalists, often on the Sunday papers, um, but generally one assumes by spads, it's one of those things when I invariably protest about it, for it threatens the integrity of the process, and also it has a chilling effect. I remember one very prominent one, um, in fact, the BBC, um, a year ago, um, where names were circulated, and um, I had people ringing me up and said, is it worth me applying? And I said, well, I think it will be a proper competition, and so on, and it actually was. I, mean, I wrote to the um, GCMS committee saying, um, despite all the previous speculation, those were robust. The, the, the final candidates were strongly impressive people. Mm -hmm. And so there was a choice, but probably maybe a smaller choice if there hadn't been the speculation. Yeah. And I think there's a real danger. I mean, for example, in the Ofcom case, it was less than 10 people applied first time round. Now, that Absolutely. was yeah. because of speculation on names. What happens on that is when you protest, everyone says, not me, Gov. Um, um, you know, you get a letter back from a minister saying, I, I couldn't agree with you more, Peter. It's absolutely appalling. Mm. I mean, it's one of those things. The other point, which is very important, is the confidentiality of the process. Yeah. One of the things I'm most pleased about is we never had a leak from my office about names, mm. because that really does deter people. You know, if you apply for something, and some very distinguished people apply um, for posts, but, but only one person become a chair or two or three a member posts, and they don't get them. They don't want their names banded around or leaked. Mm. And we were very, very careful on that. I mean, it, it, it was interesting. It, was, it tended to be national galleries or, or media things which came out in various ways the names. Um, or sometimes the names have got wrong, too. But um, I, I think that there's a, a real importance of preserving confidentiality. Otherwise, people will not apply and go through the hassle of it. But this is another tension, though, isn't it? I mean, you talked about some of the tensions mm -hmm. in, in, in the balance. And it is a confidential process because it's about people applying and that you need to have some security and some confidentiality to that process. But at the same time, this is also about the, you know, the people that will head up. Uh, important bodies that will have a big impact on public life. So you can understand the public interest in wanting to know, well, who's being put forward for this? And is it, you know, an interest in whether or not they think that that's a robust enough process? Do you think, is there more that needs to be done to explain then the post their name being announcement process of pre-appointment hearings when those occur? Other kind of checks in the system that, that will make sure that there is public transparency, you know, about the appointment that has, has occurred? Yes, basically the answer on that is that because, you know, in, in reply to one of your earlier points, Kath, that there is mystery about it. People don't know how the system works. Mm. And therefore, where there are assurances, one of the things I did, which wasn't in my, in the code or anything, was when there was a controversial appointment, particularly if there's a pre-appointment hearing, when, you know, all the major ones of pre-appointment hearing was, I'd write to the select committee mm. just saying what's happened. Is, you know, can I give you assurances it's, it's good or not? 
In, in one case, I wrote that I was very unhappy about the nature of the interview panel. Um, and that caused quite a stir. Actually, I was pleasantly surprised by some response to it. Mm. People weren't jumping up jumping and down against me. But in other cases, you can say, you know, for all you think, you may not like the final choice, but it was a robust system. There's an interesting responsibility on select committees there. Mm. That some of them do quite a few pre-appointment hearings, others um, do very few, and unsure how to do them. Mm. I mean, the guidelines from the Laser Committee of, of all, all select committees are pretty clear on what you shouldn't shouldn't do. Um, but I, I think that they sometimes they could take their responsibilities. You know, the trouble is they're, they're doing so many inquiries, mm. and to add on you know an hour and a half for a pre-appointment hearing. And that's why I, I say I was regarding my job as trying to help them and offer suggestions and equally keep in touch with committees. I mean, there's a tendency in Whitehall to regard select committees as you know, people you, 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 you survive a hearing. Mm. I always believed you know, that they were allies. You know, mm. The two successive chairs of the Public Administration Committee, uh, Bernard Jenkins and William Ragg, were, you know, I, I, I believed I should keep them in touch with what was going on. Mm. And they reciprocated from that. Okay, I want to talk about the other tension that you talked about, the um, um, balance or tension between appointment by merit and the right of the government to make appointments. Uh, and you called it a sort of mutual acceptance of restraints. Um, there's been a lot of discussion today about whether convention and mutual respect is really working. Does it depend too much on everyone understanding and respecting those subtleties? Uh, it, it depends probably to, when we're living in a more partisan, and as Jonathan Edmonds said in his introductory speech, more polarised political environment, it, it, these conventions are tested. Mm. However, it's quite difficult to work out how you, apart from, as I say, a particular group of um, independent constitutional regulators, and we can perhaps discuss, as read before Burning did, the IFG report did, on how you extend or how, how you define that. But apart from some where I would put formal limits on saying fully independent and mm. possibly all this we didn't I didn't discuss this with the CSPR I mean it occurred to me later than that the Judicial Appointments Commission where there's a veto power but it's otherwise they're given one name mm. that, that I mean I'm not sure ministers ever do that but um, I think there is something to be said for that otherwise the problem is in the, the, the politics of it ministers will say they're entitled to say we are interested in the following three or four candidates not all of them will necessarily be interviewed. Pa panels are much, I'm getting some very difficult point to get across. Panels are quite robust. Um, you know, I've known, you know, in cases where um, former cabinet ministers aren't interviewed. Mm. And that can cause a bit of a fuss, but panels can be quite robust. However, in some cases, they will go for the least confrontational option with ministers and special advisors, mm. and therefore recommend, let's say, three candidates. You know perfectly well from reading the report, which I had access to, even though they're not supposed to rank, they regarded one or two of them, and they put in, the final one might be, oh, this is to please ministers. Mm. The system is such that, that once they're just appointable, and, you know, all bets are off. Mm. And I, that is a problem mm. of, of, and it's a, it puts a lot on the robustness, independence of the panels, mm. and particularly the senior servants chairing them. Yeah, well, I was going to ask about the panels. I mean, they're chosen by civil servants on behalf of ministers. They're meant to provide sort of independent scrutiny and they're meant to make this judgment about who is appointable and who is unappointable. And as you say, once they're above the line, once they're appointable, it's then up for the ministers to decide. So there's no ranking or anything. 
Um, Matthew, I mean, do you think that there's enough emphasis there on what unappointable means? And, you know, do we need a sort of clearer understanding of what the parameters are of that? And then, Peter, I want to ask you about what goes on in terms of helping panels understand that process. This is tricky, yeah, and you've picked up on uh, the unappointability is in a way the most concrete thing that yeah. a panel can use to influence sort of ministerial decision-making. And I think as you, as you were speaking just then, Peter, the, the, the point obviously is that the, the procedures that a panel will follow are quite, quite sort of uh, well laid out, but they're quite subtle and sophisticated. Um, they, will, they will recommend a short list of candidates. They won't necessarily rank those candidates. They, they, they can state unappointability. Um, but a minister could still appoint an unappointable candidate, but would have to explain explain why. And I think the the kind of the the relationship between the the political and the technical, if you like, does depend on mutual respect and and trust in this context, because the political decision makers can't necessarily be expected always to know everything about the details of the code and the system that you're responsible for overseeing. So, to some extent, they it's reasonable to expect them to test that. They will want to say at various stages of the process, we would like this to happen, we would like this person to go through. And then you're reliant on the people in the panels who are more expert in the way these things operate to know when they are empowered to push back, how they should push back, and to use their voice in the system to do that. But I think, I think then I have heard um, different reports about how robust panels yeah. can be on that in terms of how confident they feel pushing back and exercising that role to make sure there's the right balance between political and meritocratic appointment. No, you're absolutely right, Matthew, that it varies. I mean, you know, these are human beings, mm. and, and they're doing it. The other thing is, in, in my old job, we work very closely with the appointments teams mm. in departments, which you know, varied, on the whole, overworked, um, um, very conscientious civil servants, as much as there's too much churn and turnover, but they, 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 they were the ones who serviced the panels, and they they regarded my office as an ally in trying to bring good order for it, and and so on, um, and so that was important. The a lot would depend on the balance. I mean, you, you tend to have a depending on the level of appointment, and um, a director level person and going up to the permanent secretary chairing a panel. Um, then you'd have a, depending on the nature of the appointment, a senior independent panel member. And that was a crucial role. And I, 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 I rather regret I didn't develop that relationships with them more. Mm. We always wrote, we, they always sent a letter saying, um, if you want to talk it through. And what I've done, or what I did, in um, my last 18 months, two years, is particularly on more controversial ones, actually talk to them, and also talk to them during the course of the appointment. Mm. That they, they, so they knew they could ring me, so that we've got this problem, what do you think? And I would say, well, this is what the code says, and they'd talk it through. And that, that worked pretty well. Also, the relationship with permanent secretaries, a problem-solving one, actually. Mm. Often the problem would occur candidates had fallen through. I mean, all kinds of reasons, not, not, not necessarily nefarious in any way, but proper. And they, they, we'll, we'll try and sort it out, mm. um, those difficulties. The, the issue on some panels was you've got people who are kind of quasi-political. Mm. Um, and that, you, I looked at panels and said, mm, okay, it's within the rule. What do you mean by quasi? I mean, oh, they might not be a member of the, they might not be disqualified. Yeah. 
by significant political activity. It's rather yeah. the same as the Electoral Commission. Yeah. Which, I mean, you know it when you see it. I mean, it's giving a lot of money, it's standing as a candidate, it's speaking out in favour. Not being a member of a party, that's fine. But it, but it, it, it is being identifiably involved with the party over the last five years. Mm. Um, or sometimes you could argue a bit longer than that. And um, so people who didn't fall into that category, but nonetheless were clearly associated with a particular viewpoint. Mm. And both, both Labour and Tory in the last 20 years have done that. I mean, there's nothing particularly unique about the current government in that respect. So that one had to watch for and see that they... And there, were, there was one particularly um, outrageous case where a panel was clearly packed. Mm. And um, that annoyed a lot of people. I mean, it wasn't um, I don't know, just me who just thought this was a stitch-up. Mm. But in general, I mean, the other point is on the independent, senior independent panel member... Um, I had a right to be consulted. And in fact, what happened was that um, normally a department would say, well, the minister's thinking of this and that. Mm. And we'd say, mm, OK or not. And some, actually, two or three departments had kind of pools of potential independent panel members, which worked well and, um, and cut the time. Mm. But obviously, it depended on each individual competition. But... And in fact, there was no case of someone being appointed a senior independent panel member who might said no to. Mm. They accepted, because again, the publicity would be, you know, mm. they didn't want me saying, I don't think it's a balanced um, um, panel. Uh, there was, I mean, the, 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 uh, I had to push back. One case, why on earth Secretary of State concerned um, wanted it, who knows? Um, well, I think one probably does know, but anyway, um, wanted uh, to appoint a Tory peer. Mm. And I remember my senior policy advisor said to me, Peter, I said, what? And I had a conversation with the permanent secretary, and I said, you know, come off it. Yeah. And, and the permanent secretary knew perfectly well and agreed with me, and we found a way around it. Mm. Actually, quite satisfactorily. Um, but it, there are, the, the, those cases do occur. But on the whole, people, people do listen. They don't want an open row. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, the transparency embarrassment factor. Yeah. The embarrassment factor, not necessarily the top levels of government, mm. um, where you know, things ride through. But I found if I would say, well, okay, we can do this, but we've got to have an exchange of letters on it. Yeah. Mm. People didn't want that. Yeah. And I, oddly enough, possibly because of my background being in journalism and here, um, I was more willing to be public than say, mm. civil service predecessors. Mm. I, I had a different style in that yeah. way. Which I think, oddly enough, David Normington, my, my predecessor, forecast this. I mean, he mm. was the epitome of the Mandarin appointment, permanent secretary at the Home Office for that education, mm. and so on. But he actually warned, um, as a result of the changes which occurred when I took over, that, that it would, it, the job would be a more public one, mm. which possibly was easier for me to do than he, he would have found. Yeah. I mean, you've succeeded, obviously, through your tenure, Peter, with this in terms of making sure that the, the senior independent, independent panel members were independent, um, that unappointable candidates weren't appointed. But, but you've had to do, as you described, quite a lot of persuasive work to achieve that. I mean, do you think that says something about, about the system, that, you know, if, if, if it's just that obvious, sh should there not be a rule that you can fall back on in those cases? Well, it's interesting that. I mean, I, I found on the whole... I mean, the other thing is that the danger regarding governance monolithic. Mm. It isn't. The, there are various... Uh, even in 10 Downing Street, there are various factions mm. and so on, and the cabinet office are. So I didn't find, you know, I was battling against a machine. There were plenty of people who would agree with me. Yeah. 
and allies on such things. So, I, 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 and people wanted the best people appointed, and the, the, there was, and they also recognised political realities that ultimately ministers will pick who they want. But it should be try, try and avoid the it being an unconsidered choice. That's the key thing. Yeah. Mm. Um, I've just while we're on the topic of, of panels, I've got a couple of questions here from uh, the audience. Um, one of which says, uh, where let me find it again. Um, how are independent members in assessment panels remunerated? In practice, I have the impression, this is from an anonymous uh, uh, viewer, in practice, I have the impression that sitting on a panel as an independent member is increasingly a case of, I help ministers by being on the panel and they help me in my career. Before you come to that, though, we have another question from uh, Amanda. Uh, why is it acceptable for a board member at a regulated firm to sit on the panel and choose who runs their main regulator? It's a live situation with the Charity Commission chair panel with two charity leaders helping choose who marks their homework. The end of independent regulation across sectors? Question mark. I can't comment on that one, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, the, there are two issues. Independent panel members have to be independent politically and independent of the department concerned. Yeah. And certainly, sorry, senior independent panel members have to be. They, they can sometimes serve in other capacities on the panel, but not as a senior independent panel member. You, you can't be running, um, you can't be a NED for the department and be the senior independent panel member. Although sometimes you can be a panel member and also all, all run an arm's length body for the department. Um, on remuneration, it's sorted out by departments. I don't think anyone um, got wealthy by being a, a panel member. Mm. Um, um, it's really like everything to do with public appointments. They, um, the time stated is always exceeded in practice. Mm. Um, you know, I haven't met a, a chair of a public body. They'll say to me, how, how, how much are you supposed to work on this, Peter? And I say, well, it was two days a week or whatever it was. Uh, but it was three or whatever in practice. Mm. And that's the true of all public bodies. So I, 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 I wouldn't take that. On the regulated, I mean, I don't know the specific instances of that. Well, I can't talk about the specific instances of that. But there is a sense of which, and it's a, it's a real dilemma, this, of um, you want people who know the sector, mm. even if they're not compromised in relation to the department. And it's just difficult, that. I mean, I, I, one I can talk about, because I, I published a complaint on it, it was the Arts Council, where everyone knew everyone else. I mean, it was almost a slight parody, in a way. And um, the, the, at the beginning of the interviews, we saw on the record of it, they had to say, well, you know, I know the, the chair of the panel knew the X and Y and Z candidates because they'd done things together in the arts and so on. I'm not saying they were perverse or anything like that, but it, 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 it is an issue, that. And I remember I, I, I spoke to the permanent secretary at the time and said, no, can't you make it less chummy and all that? And which reply was, well, we want people to know about the sector. Well, yeah, but can't we someone who's at least a little bit independent? I mean, you know, mm. I felt like, you know, if the arts council, can't we have a widget manufacturer there? Well, sorry. presumably it also goes to the question of diversity again. You yeah, need uh, people who... yeah I, that, 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 that's interesting. One interesting diversity point is, um, I, I know it'll be shot down by some people, I think we passed a point of, on sustainability mm. of both women candidates and women interviewers. If you look at the panels, um, there's often, even if it's a um, three or a four-strong panel, there'll be two women on them, which wasn't true earlier on. Mm. It's, it's in relation to two things. One, what's generally happened in public life, generation. The other thing is a lot of the appointments jobs are 
actually work quite well for women who have, let's say they've got caring responsibilities and so on, because they're, 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 they can be done on a part-time basis. Mm. And that, perhaps it's not the right thing, but it actually does secure gender diversity. There's more of a problem still on panels, and the point is has improved a lot with ethnic minorities. I, in a sense, I hate the term ethnic minorities because it's such a wide group. I mean, you know, you, 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 you get some, there aren't many Bangladeshi women getting public appointments, yet there are a lot of um, ones from India and mm. so on. I mean, you know, there are a lot of diversities there. And the worst thing, as I said, is disabled, which I think is where the record is still, um, I don't say the word shameful almost. It's, it's just, I mean, interesting, two exceptions. The MOD, mm. because of Iraq and Afghanistan, there are a lot of very mentally able-bodied people who are physically, they're in wheelchairs or mm. they've lost a limb or whatever. And this has really happened in the last four or five years because the MOD was, was a bit behind the curve on, on mm. say, well, any public appointment a few years ago, but it's changed. And now they've got a very good record of using disabled veterans on public bodies, associated with, and transport is very good, mm. um, which is good given the importance of access and so on. Um, I want to move to the question of what bodies you need to be regulated in different ways. You um, talked about the difference between, as it were, regulators, those scrutinising government in particular, and then sort of executive functions. And you said there is a bit of a, a blurring there. Um, but there's also obviously the question about um, whether there are some other appointments that should be regulated. Um, Matthew, if I can come to you first. I mean, what are the sort of key concerns that you have for that? I know we've been talking a lot about non-executive directors in government departments, for instance. Yeah, indeed. So, I mean, that's, that's sort of the, 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 the obvious case where, where there's quite an important position um, in government, um, which um, is, is, is an unregulated appointment. And that means you, you have much less transparency over who's been appointed, why they've been appointed. Um, than, than would happen if this was under under the auspices of the of, of, of the commissioner. Um, so I think that, that that would be the most obvious case and that, that there are others. Um, but there are also maybe other appointments where you, you could say, for instance, if there's a small body and you're regulating multiple members of a board, mm. um, actually, once you've appointed the chair, and if the chair is politically acceptable, then maybe the, the chair can have more involvement in appointing the, the members of that board of that, of, of that body. So it could go either way, depending on the organisation. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's very, I mean, there's a specific issue on non-executive directors of mm. departmental boards where the CSPL report recommends to be regulated. I agree in theory, but I have some qualifications in practice because it's all part of a curious um, spectrum of advisors to ministers, much of which is totally legitimate. Going from their special advisors to some cases, councillors of advisors and the treasury and effectively number 10. And then you see some of the recent appointments of non-executive board members as almost extra special advisors. And I think that's got to be clarified. Where are, the, where are the lines there? Because if you said, let's regulate, let's ensure that all are made up in competition, as they started out being, being done, and when uh, John Brown and uh, Ian Cheshire were running it. The, predominantly, these were people with very considerable business experience in project management, HR, um, digital, and so on. But now you've seen many more direct appointments of political people, or even in some cases, people who are clearly political allies appointed by open competition. Mm. Well, 
I haven't the faintest clue whether that was a genuinely fair, open competition. Some of the people are good, some you, you wonder, and should they be put in a different category? I think there needs to be a more of a debate about ministers perfectly entitled to have strong political support, source of issue, extended offices, and so on and so mm -hmm. forth. But when you're talking about non-executives, non also, these are people who are supposed to hold you to account. Mm. If they're a political ally, are they going to hold you to account? And I think that, that is an issue. The more generally, uh, the, uh, uh, on unregulated appointment of non-civil service appointments made by ministers, I would, I would uh, be in favour of just listing them. The, the departments should produce um, a clear list of... Um, who's appointed by a minister. Mm. Term of appointment, how appointed, remuneration. Absolutely. And, I, and not to say these should be regulated. A lot of them, lot of them it, 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 it's impractical um, to do it, but we should know who they are. Mm. Um, I remember talking and, a, and a clearer typology then of what different kinds of appointments are, what the powers are, yeah. and what the process is yeah. to appointment. But on the point of whether, how who you regard as scrutinies or not, I mean, mm. read before burning, took it much further than I did. I mean, I, you know, both the CSPL report and my own views and the speech I made were more, were more tentative um, on the hope that if you narrowly define it, you might make a bit of progress. Mm. But I accept fully that there are, there are a range of, of other regulators, some of which, of course, have mixed roles because they're actually executive bodies in their sectors mm. uh, as well as regulating them, and that's quite difficult. Mm. Um, and um, it's not clear to define. Also, in some cases, ministers say, look, we want to influence the policy of that. It's not just regulating. And I think you've got to um, be quite careful in definition there. Mm. But I, 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 I just feel that for some, I mean, as is clear in the public controversies, you do want to be clearer on um, the degree of independence. Mm. Oh, it's, uh, actually, it relates to a, a question that, again, came from the audience. Sorry. We've obviously got the windows open for um, air in this room, which means that you get the lovely noise of uh, the police going past. Um, but there was a question here, if I can find it again, um, which was about um, you know, the safeguards and so forth for appointing um, people to be um, you know, some of these COVID positions. Um, forgive me, whoever it is wrote that, I can't find the question at the moment. Um, whether or not those kind of appointments should also have been regulated. But those were, those were different. Those were often civil service. I, I, I think in practice, it was impossible to do it because they would, they would be done at such speed. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's the case for transparency. I don't think in practice it would be remotely possible to do it. Yeah. I think, rather like the contracts in that area, we should have known what's happening. That's, I'm not, I don't think, they, an open competition taking three or more months would have been absurd mm. in that case. And I don't think that, that, that was remotely necessary or desirable. But it's just knowing what's going on there. That's the, that's the key in that respect. Yeah. And then if those appointments go beyond a certain point and the organisation persists in steady state, then you would have a different argument. Like Absolutely. That. The general view would be much over a year mm. um, on that, Matthew. I agree with yeah. you there. I mean, you know, when, when does a temporary appointment become a permanent one? Mm. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, we've got a couple of questions about um, uh, also your job, actually. A question from uh, Peter, who's actually upstairs here. Uh, the Commissioner for Public Appointments is unusual in being a solo regulator without a commission. Do you feel adequately supported in discharging your duties? Um, does your successor need greater resources? Um, I'm sure. Um, I think my um, two advisors and one... Um, a, a, one um, excellent 
partial media advisor would, would say absolutely need more resources. And more things we could have, more reviews. But it was, remember, unlike the Civil Service Commission, where the Civil Service Commission's chair um, interview panels, um, I, I had no role in that at all. I, I, was, I was the regulator. Um, yes, yeah, sure, we could have done more resources. Having a commission really wouldn't have made much sense um, because the decisions were, you know, I had excellent, successive, excellent principal advisors um, and they were, who were providing me with good advice and a lot of the case work was done by the, the mm. other member of the team. So I didn't, I, 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 actually having a formal commission wasn't really necessary. We had a pretty small budget. It's mm. a small budget operation. And the, I mean, the interesting parallel is the Civil Service Commission, I would say, the Commissioner's Chair, um, Director General interview, um, appointments and so on, and, the, and the, the First Commissioner does the Permanent Secretary ones on the whole, um, is ACABA, which does have, but that often has to, to reach very tricky decisions about what's acceptable and isn't. And therefore, mm. there's an argument for a, uh, a commission there. Mine were more narrowly regulatory, mm. you know, and I wasn't forming a judgment, as I emphasised, on the individual suitability of anyone at all. Mm. I was doing with the process. So, it, I, 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 I mean, because I had very good advisors working with me, I didn't feel the need for, you know, commi uh, um, you know commissioners, and I, I can't see what they would have done, actually. Mm. It was debated in the past. I mean, virtually everything to do with these roles have been debated sometime over the years, but I... I, I would, would say it's quite sensible. Another related topic um, which the CSPL report raises is should you bring together um, regulators? Mm. Um, the, you know, should, um, the, 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 there are some lobbying groups, well, lobbying, I don't use the word pejoratively in current context, mm. but some uh, external bodies are very keen on having an ethics regulator. I mm. like the report, which I entirely agree with. I'm against it because they have very different functions. Indeed, there was five years when the Civil Service Commissioner and the Public Appointments Commissioner was the same person, mm. uh, David Norrington, my predecessor. And David would be the first to admit, as everyone accepted, that, that actually they have two different jobs, mm. very different jobs, and they uh, required different relationships with government departments, and it was often quite confusing. Mm. And you know, he, 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 of course, did them extremely well, but it was difficult. Mm. And so I, I'm against a big bang super regulation. One, I think they'd be too powerful, and the jobs are different. Well, what about um, firming up the role in different ways? I mean, you talked about the Civil Service Commissioner. Mm. Um, you're, you've got a code, of, it's the government's code. Mm. Um, are there other ways to, as it were, firm up your role? Is there more that we could do in legislation to actually make the parameters of what it is that you're doing, how the public appointments process works, sort of clearer, more permanent, more durable? Well, it's interesting that certainly the recently departed Civil Service Commissioner, Ian Watmore, felt it was very important that he had the, what's known as the CRAG Act, the, um, which established the Civil Service in law and the Civil Service Commission in law as a backing for what he did. And that was an appointment on merit, impartiality and all that is actually in mm. the, the Act. And he felt that was very useful. Now, in theory, uh, all they would need is an ordering council to abolish my role um, and um, and to or to change it dramatically. Mm. In practice, the, 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 there was a big review for in Jerry Grimstone's review of the public appointments process, um, which was conducted in 2015-16, uh, 
And that led to the code, and it becoming the government's code, not my code. However, they did consult me extensively on it, and I got some very important changes in it, like being consulted on independent panel members and um, also exceptional appointments, things like that. And also I got the principle of fairness inserted in, which is mm. absolutely crucial in reaching judgments. But, all right, they could have just put up a, 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 um, another order in council, but it's a, it's a pretty big hassle to do that. They're also obliged to consult. Mm. In, the, in the order in council, it says if they're going to change the code, um, they've got to consult about it. Mm. Um, the one thing which is quite, which, and actually we, which actually work quite sensibly, is of course the parameters of public bodies are constantly changing. Um, you know, new ones are being devised, old ones are being merged, all that stuff. And there was a provision basically to say we could jump the gun. That if, if a department wanted its body to be regulated by me, even though it hadn't yet appeared in order in council, it could happen. Mm. And that was perfectly sensible. That you know, made a lot of sense. Mm. And so there was flexibility there mm. on, on that score. But I would, I'm, certainly my preference would be statute. But actually, the, once we had the original code, uh, there, was no, um, um, you know, there was no appetite in Whitehall mm. and the Cabinet's Office to change it because you know, it would be too much of a, a problem. Yeah. Um, Matthew, what other change would you like? I've got a suggestion here from Graham P. Why not semi-democratise public appointments? Each candidate should take questions from a room full of staff and or citizens who could then provide uh, feedback to the appointments panel. Um, are there other changes that you'd like to see? Would that be one of them? Um, I, I think that would be uh, fraught with difficulty in terms yeah. of actually implementing it um, in, in, in practice. I mean, I think one of the things we haven't um, touched on that I think would be important to try and reform is the is the pace at which these decisions are made. You mentioned it in your in your in your, in your speech, and so I think that's where I would I would possibly focus in terms of a, 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 a change to the process, and that might be in terms of starting processes much earlier, um, and I think in terms of the way. Um, the political um, kind of decision-making around the process comes in. I think at the moment, as, as, as Peter said, you know, there's a right to have a political discussion of the process at every single stage of it. Um, and I think that does introduce quite a lot of um, delay. Mm -hmm. um, so I think what I would like to, um, I think be worth considering is whether you can have that happen near the beginning um, so that you have sort of framing as to what, what, it, what is wanted through the process, and then at the end when there is a shortlist. Um, but I think having, having um, that kind of iterative process all of, the, all of the way through tends to kind of chip, chip away at it. Um, I think then, um, you know, there is a, obviously then, I, th I think the, the independent panel member within, within the, the, the assessment of the panel, that's important, and I think potentially strengthening that person's role and responsibility to uh, report to Peter on the conduct of the, of the, um, of the assessment, not mm. just when there's been a material breach of the code, but sort of giving more general feedback on, on, on how it's gone and whether things are going well as it goes along, I think might be a helpful improvement too. Mm. And oddly enough, the person who wants um, uh, you know, public hearings of course, some local delivery bodies have them, mm. health trusts and so on. I think it'd be terribly difficult with... And also, there's an obligation in a lot of public bodies to have a kind of public open day, which, of course, has been slightly mucked up by COVID. And uh, I know the Civil Service Commission does. Um, um, and, and in general, to be accessible... To exp I mean, it goes back to your very good question about explaining... Um, what, what happens, that I think that the public bodies can do more to demystify themselves, but having someone sit down in front of a citizen's panel would not be a productive thing, as opposed to, while they're doing the job, talking to people. Mm. 
Um, there's lots of great questions that we've got coming in. So sorry, I'm not going to be able to get to all of them, but just to, to mention them, there's uh, one from Penny about um, for bodies where independence is essential, why should ministers play any role in selecting those appointed? Um, you know, perhaps on your balance point, should it actually be appointment by merit? And is there a system that, that can focus on that better? Uh, a question from... Um, somebody who's anonymous on how can you prevent the appointment of ill-qualified individuals So what goes on in terms of making sure that actually they have the skills and knowledge to be able to do well, the on, job. On, on those yeah. two points, what, in one area, of course, which is the judiciary, there is a very tight process um, of um, where, as I said, there's, there's one candidate put forward and there's mm. a veto power and, and so on. So you, you can do it. The problem is they, the public bodies are part of the public sector for which ministers are accountable. One can't take... I, I, I am quite hostile to the belief that you can take ministers out completely. And when one talks about merit, it's in relation to published criteria for something. And those include you know, the, the context of government policy. Mm. So, uh, you, you know, you, you, one might think, oh, th th this body should be... I think it's a degree, I'd say it's a spectrum. So, some things like the regulators should be much more independent, but you c it's very difficult to take, or and it's not desirable to take the politics out of it completely. Mm. Um, mm. Question from Tim Durrant from the Institute for Government. I hear they're good at things. Is there enough of an understanding among ministers, politicians and the public about the benefits of an independent appointments process, um, or at least the independence within it that we've been talking about? And if not, how can we get there? And then a, another good question from Sam. Uh, what is the best piece of advice you could give your successor? I'll, you can ponder that. Um, I'm going to ask you, Matthew, about you know general understanding of this and the sort of merits of the independent process, or at least the, the appointment by merit aspects of, of this. How would we best convey that to politicians and the public? I mean, if you, I think if you ask politicians or the public, should there be an independent merit-based process, they will say yes. Yeah. Um, uh, I think uh, in the case of the public, um, it's a question then of trusting uh, the technocrats that that is what they are trying to produce through all of these rules and, and systems. And then, as Peter's saying, the transparency, the clarity of what's happening um, is, is, is really, really important. Um, I think for, for politicians, then, it is also about trust. It's about do you trust the machine, the civil service, to be, to be engaging this in a fair way? Or do you actually perceive, um, you know, having come into government, that you're inheriting something which, which is biased against you? And to achieve yeah. your objectives, you have, to, you have to push against it. Um, and so I think um, it's, in, it's in the nature of having a political view of what you're trying to achieve that you might, you might tend to feel that. Um, but I think, I think this, is, this is where the, the, the challenges of, of, of um, people in the system trying to um, support a merit-based approach have to be robust about that, but able to argue and defend as to why they are doing things in that particular way. Mm. And your advice to your successor? Um, my advice, well, I've already did you write given, them a little note? I, I, I did, well, I, in the contemporary version, <laughs> I did do a, a lengthy email, which we appreciated. Much of it was just about sheer practical things mm. of what to do. Um, get to know departments and their very differing Ooh. questions on, on, on appointments because there's an enormous disparity in depart between departments on the number of appointments they make. Mm. Um, um, be, try to make the system work well, smoothly, be allies of the people involved in appointments and also try and get out there and encourage more people to apply. Mm. Yeah. 
Okay, just uh, we've only got five minutes left, so I just want to um, quickly just turn to what has been happening in Parliament yesterday and today. Um, Owen Paterson has now decided to step down as an MP. Uh, the Parliamentary Commissioner um, is still in post, and, and you know, given there was a fair bit of pressure put on her, um, it's obviously been a difficult time for her. I'm sure you know her. Um, and the government have, in the end, stood by the idea that any reform needs uh, both careful thoughts, some more time and, all importantly, cross-party consensus. I mean, generally, what's been your reflections on, on watching the last 24 and hours? Extraordinary. I mean, at the beginning of each session, the world has changed mm. in relation to that. You know, from when 9.30, when, when um, Jonathan Evans um, deplored what had happened yesterday in Parliament, and then yeah. we had the change in the government's approach two hours later, and then we had the Owen Patterson coming down so I think <laughs> the one thing I'd say is I wouldn't start from here. Um, they must all wish they were back at 10 o'clock yesterday morning. Mm. Um, that, that's what they must really wish, that some of the um, self-inflicted problems, I mean, everyone, including Patterson himself, to um, the government's um, business managers, probably the Prime yeah. Minister, that. I think the lessons are the, the public is pretty sceptical about what politicians do and if it's necessary mm. to demonstrate a robust and fair system. I'm sure it could be improved. I mean, no mm. one, Chris Bryant was saying in his session earlier on, yes, of course, there could be improvements, and indeed the committee is looking at various mm. things. I mean, um, I think it may probably have to broaden its inquiry now to take account of some of the points that um, Jacob Rees-Mogg made yesterday. Um, and that, that should happen, but it needs to happen in a more consensual way. Mm. But the, 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 the public is sceptical enough about politicians that the last 24 hours don't help. Mm. And, uh, uh, and also, a lot of MPs themselves feel bruised by being criticised. I mean, I, I remember vividly, and it's not a direct parallel, but there, there are parallels, in the expenses scandal of 12 years ago, bumping into a London MP who basically wasn't affected by the additional allowances thing, who was almost frightened to go back to his constituency because of all the insults he'd get. Mm. And I think, you know, we, well, all right, the, the, in the sense of the changes of today may take some of the sting out of it, but I'd be quite interested to see what MPs say from what's happening. And the lessons are, as I say, you need standards matter, not in a detailed sense of people following them, but the belief that you know, people in public life are behaving decently and straightforwardly. And that if you're going to revise it, do it in a way which is, gets broad support. Mm. And, I mean, what about Catherine Stone and her position? Because, obviously, it's been very difficult. You've never been in quite that position, no. even though stuff got in the newspapers, it, um, not quite in the firing line in, in that sort of way. But is there more that we need to do to actually support the people doing those kind of jobs, especially when they're very much politician-facing and there is this risk of being dragged into major rows like this? Yeah, I mean, I, I've got the highest respect for Catherine Stone. She's a woman of integrity. I do know her. Um, and she's been under enormous personal pressure. Mm. Um, and particularly when you're directly... I mean, Ipsa was the same, which fixes MP salaries and expenses and all that mm. stuff. Um, it is very difficult because, you know, if MPs are criticised, they feel a grievance and all that, and there are a lot of people feeling bruised on it. So you've got to have a robust, but they need to be supported. I mean, I noticed in Catherine Stone's case, um, uh, Lindsay Hoyle, the Speaker, has been very strong in support of her position, given mm. she can't reply. Um, and, and in a sense, if you're doing a regulatory role, I had it on a minor, well, I'm saying minor way, on a couple of decisions I took, 
where it goes back to the early thing. It's very difficult to persuade people and explain to them what was happening. But uh, you know, with social media, because social media aggregates, I got blasted by social media. I, I described it as useless, biased, and everything. All turning on a very technical point on mm. interpretation um, of something, a marginal point. And they couldn't appreciate I had I didn't have bigger powers than I actually had. Mm. And Matthew, does this worry you more about the tone of the debate and so forth about wider arms length bodies? I mean, it's not just people like Catherine Stone. If there's major floods, obviously head of the Environment Agency is very much in the firing line. Um, is there more that we need to do to actually draw public attention to the sort of the value in peacetime, as it were, of these bodies so that when they're in the front line uh, dealing with something very serious, um, you know, there's more public understanding, more political sympathy, perhaps, with the position that they're in? Absolutely. I mean, I think the, the job description of being a chair or a chief executive of a large public body increasingly includes dealing with, 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 with this sort of thing. Um, but I think it's really Everyone important. Everyone needs crisis management training. Indeed. Um, and, and it's important that those bodies and their existence is not just viewed as a necessary evil. We, we set them up for good reason. They're led by experts in their field who, who, who know and, and need to know how to handle particularly difficult issues, often very technical issues, uh, and they're doing um, uh, important work. Um, and so I think the more that you know, we, we can explain that, um, the, the, the more sympathy will be, they'll be with them when they're in this kind of situation. Yeah. Okay, that brings our, our event and our conference to an end. It's been an extraordinary day, uh, but a very important discussion to be having. Our thanks again to all involved in organising today's events uh, and to all of our speakers. Uh, you can watch back any of today's events on our website, on YouTube, and also on various news channels, apparently. Uh, do join us again on the 16th of November when we'll be joined by Andy Street, uh, Mayor of West Midlands. Plenty more to discuss then. Thanks for being here.